Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 216 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be speaking with Kate Maruyama. Kate Maruyama was raised on books and weaned on movies in a small college town in New England. She writes, teaches, cooks, and eats in Los Angeles where she lives with her family. Her novel, Harrowgate, was published by 47 North in 2013 and her novella Family Solstice, named Best Fiction Book of 2021 by Rue Morgue Magazine, was published by Omnium Gatherum. Her novella, Halloween Beyond, A Gentleman's Suit, appears in Halloween Beyond, Piercing the Veil, and is out now from Crystal Lake Publishing. Bleak Houses, which is going to be the, the main part of our folk, uh, conversation today, is available from Raw Dog Screaming Press, and it was released in August of this year, 2023. Her short work has appeared in Asimov's Magazine, Analog SF, among other journals, and in numerous anthologies, including Winter Horror Days, Halloween Carnival 3, and December Tales. Kate, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on the most recent, which is Bleak Houses, which, like I said, we're going to talk about mostly. Um, I would love to know, especially with New England being, I think New England is mainly the setting for the second work. <laughs> Middletown, Connecticut River. I'm not sure if we're talking Connecticut State, if we're talking upstate New York. Buddy, we'll get to that in a minute, but I'd just love to know about growing up in this, in the East Coast and in New England, about your reading and your writing life. I mean, are you, were you always the the kid at the library? Were, were books just always around the house? How did reading and writing work uh, as you were growing up? I grew up with, um, yeah, I grew up with some super big literary privilege and that my dad was a um, English professor and my mom was a writer. Uh... And so we had bookshelves basically floor to ceiling. Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of them were for kids. So yeah, I definitely would uh, walk down to our local library, the Russell Library in yeah, Middletown, Connecticut, and okay. um, get a stack and just carry them home. That was how we spent our summers was books and ice water. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, well, I speak for myself being fairly ignorant sometimes to like East Coast geography, California from Sacramento to LA is six, seven hours it's all the same state. So when you say Middletown, Connecticut, is this just, is this like bedroom community for like New York City or is this closer to like? Mount oh, Michigan? no, no, it's it's its own city. Um, it's it was uh, started as a port town. It's a, mm. um, a well, it was at the time I grew up in a, a working class city. Um, okay. I, we were sort of the oddballs, uh, the university campus. Uh -huh. And um, it's got a 300 year old uh, history. The closest train is half an hour away, so it, it's not really a commuter type place for New Yorkers. Um, it's essentially in the middle of middle of the state, hey. hence the name. Okay, all right. I appreciate that. Um, I'd love to know what you were reading. What were some of the, who were some of the writers? What were some of the books, series that really interested you? Yeah, um, well, I was... And it's funny because um, people always ask how I got into horror, but now I realize all of it. Um, the Oz books were enormously uh, huge for me. Um, we had a bunch inherited. Um, two copies had come from my grandfather in 1906 when they were first published. Mm. My mom had grown up on them and collected all 36. Mm. Um, and so uh, I read those all the time, but I read everything I could get my hands on um, mm. and was often drawn to fantasy and uh and darker stories and more imaginative stories are we talking to oz like wizard of oz the wizard of oz by l frank baum he yeah. went on to write a good i think 12 uh books um which is very funny because he had always wanted to be a um uh, film producer and he just couldn't get that career off the ground mm -hmm. so he lived in hollywood and wrote these books um, and um the you know he never 
the first one didn't get made into a movie until like you know 30 years after it was it was made oh, wow. and he just couldn't break into the film industry yeah so the fifth book he tried to make end forever because he was very tired of writing oz and wanted mm -hmm. to launch a movie and um i don't know it's kind of one of those the path that happened was way better for him i think hmm. i there there are definitely some scenes in there almost like an et like with the where he gets sick but like wizard of oz i mean there's some scenes that are are pretty dang scary right yeah, actually, the books are way more scary than the film was. Okay. Um, there's a town where um, basically in Oz, you can never die, even if they hack you into pieces. Uh, oh. They they have a Chinatown where everybody is so terrified at not uh, Chinese, uh, China, the substance uh, okay. where everybody's terrified. If they fall over and break. That's it. Mm. And every piece of them lives forever. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of horror in Oz. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Uh <laughs> How about Stephen King? Were you were you influenced by him? As yeah, well? so I first really got into um, I always liked dark stuff, but the first time I really got into horror was my boyfriend at the time, uh, to whom I'm now married, mm. um, gave me his copy of Night Shift to read, uh, and uh, I burned through that. Um, so yeah, definitely that was formative. I don't know if we want to play armchair psychologist here, but I mean, is is there something in horror that you know, it's like an escape from reality. I, I'm like, I'm like the biggest wimp and I, I haven't read a lot of horror, you know, movies, or even like a, like a roller coaster or something like that. I mean, is there some, I'm sure psychology you kind of played on yourself there, or is it just like, oh, this is really cool and interesting. Is there some sort of escape? Is it like I can live vicariously? I don't know. I was, I was raised Catholic and I know a lot of Catholic <laughs> horror writers. So yeah, when you're in a, in a, a place where, I mean, that stuff's dark. Um, and also, you know, growing up in New England, which is very dark for a large portion of the year. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I just I've always been um, intrigued and absorbed by terrifying things. And also, I grew up in a, a house um, that uh, my room was off an attic and it was very it's actually the house that's in family solstice um, is the house mm -hmm. I grew up in. And so there were always terrifying dark corners everywhere. Yeah. So perhaps it was my way of coping or maybe I just like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Dude, I, I grew up Catholic and I guess maybe on the sunnier side of the of the country. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But there's <laughs> a, I'm sure there are already some books out there. But there's, there's a book there, right, about the connection between horror writing and, and Catholicism, maybe. I'm sure there's a lot out there. Yeah, I've been trying to get a panel going because there are a lot of us. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I just think that, yeah. Definitely the concept of evil being drilled into you by nuns can make sure. you sort of dwell there. <laughs> you talked about the where you grew up being working class. I mean, is this like old, old New England, like waspy? Like what would like the ethnic breakdown maybe? Oh, no, no. Um, Portuguese? Not Middletown. Middletown was largely Polish, Italian and Irish. So mm -hmm. um, very Catholic. Mm, there were, was wow. one church for each each uh, language. Uh, there were there were masses in Polish in the Polish church, etc. Um, and uh, it was more. There were people working at Pratt and Whitney. Um, there were people, uh, yeah, just working class doing mm -hmm. doing. Yeah, now okay. it's very different. Uh, once insurance came in, it's gotten very white collar. Uh, okay. I appreciate that. As you got into high school, college, did you continue with the same type of reading? Did you take a couple detours? And even, I guess, even in now to today, like, what are some of the, who are some of the more modern authors? What are some of the more modern works? Mm. And then maybe even like, made you say like, oh, I can do this too, or I want to oh, do yeah, this Oh yeah, I too. didn't, yeah, I never, um, the places I write from are never like, I want to do that also. Uh, it usually just comes from some strange idea or something, but I read everything. Um, I read tons of literary fiction. I read all of James Baldwin. My dad gave me the collection when I graduated um, mm. college. You know, I've just always just uh, read everything that that compelled me. Um, so specific influences, I feel like I'm more influenced by writers in my actual life um, than um, by the books I've read. I do have to say, though, I think I wanted to write novels once I read Another Country uh, by James Baldwin, okay. what he could do in there and how he could occupy so many lives and spaces and everybody sort of colliding. Mm -hmm. um, that was definitely where I came from when I started uh, working on full novels. 
Yeah. So I, I don't think I've achieved it, but it's definitely, you know, that's what I'm, I'm reaching for. Yeah. The block of wood or whatever that they, that, that Shay's father takes down when they go into the basement, you know, some sort of like uh initiation ceremony for you. It was oh. like, for you, it was like getting the, <laughs> the Baldwin books at the end of college. How cool is that? What a cool like graduation gift, right? Well, yeah, no, I was very lucky uh, that my parents were very widely read and always shoving books in my hands, especially mm -hmm. when I was a grown, you know, an adult, because my mom read absolutely, it felt like everything that came out at the mm -hmm. time. And so um, I was very lucky to be exposed to books that had already been vetted by her. Yeah. Uh, and it also kept my budget down because they would just come right. in the mail. Laughing <laughs> <laughs> because okay. that block of wood was actually, uh, our house got broken into when I was growing up. And so, and they had gotten in through the basement. So my dad uh, got a two by four and put up two um, brackets. And so that was actually a real thing from our house. <laughs> you always hear that writing advice about, you know, take something that happened in your life and change it, you know, slightly or whatever. And there you go, right? Because wasn't it in, in the book, doesn't he say, yeah, like, yeah. wasn't it like the lie was that it was to deter burglars, but in your life, it really was? Right. That's right. so cool. I took a lot of uh, physical details of the house and, and, yeah. them and sort of repurposed them. Shoot, we're getting all the good tidbits here. I love it. Man. Um, <laughs> I wonder, I'm not sure, like, how recently you've been a teacher. I, I wonder if you've been teaching for a while. I, I wonder just about, um, like, how teaching informs your writing and vice versa. Yeah, I've been teaching since um, actually before I left my graduate degree at Antioch University in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I actually started teaching on a volunteer basis at junior high downtown. Mm. Um, but I've been teaching writing to grownups and uh, I taught in the Antioch um, MFA program. And then in the BA program, I've been teaching for 15 years and now I'm at Cal State LA okay. uh, teaching students fiction and such. And um, yeah, uh, my students feed me, they keep me going. Um, being able to sort of help them get to what they're working on um, and to uh, sort of help them realize what it is that they're doing and giving them some tools and I call them parlor tricks, you know, little things like if you take out the word like, suddenly your simile becomes can become a metaphor or mini metaphor, things like that. Um, so it's been, a huge uh, joy and privilege to be hearing all of this work sort of coming through me. And also in teaching, I have to talk about things they should do. And I realize half the time I'm not following that advice myself. So having to reiterate that, uh, that advice keeps me, uh, keeps me working in a positive mm. way. I'm really, Is really grateful to my students. Oh, that's so cool. Is Antioch the one that's like right, right by the airport? It's in, it's in uh, Culver City at Corporate Point. It's in a, right. in a okay. high rise there. Kind of by yeah. Howard Hughes, maybe. It okay. was a low uh, residency program. So yeah, we yeah. would go down there for 10 intense days and then work remotely for the rest of the semester. Okay. You've been published for many years now. The most recent one is Bleak Houses and has a really cool cover. And we have Safer and we have Family Solstice, which are novellas within safers maybe 80 mm -hmm. ish pages maybe maybe 85 I, and family solstice is 45 50 maybe sounds then, good so, yeah right you're like i think so i don't know i can't remember in the book itself because you know i, I dealt with the pages on my document sure <laughs> More. no I don't, I don't blame you for that so i wonder just about like the project and the, the prompt i think you talked in the acknowledgments a little bit about like a prompt like how did it, how did the this the series come together which of which yours is volume one raw dog screaming press um I had submitted Family Solstice to, and it had been published by Omnium Gatherum, which Kate Jones was a phenomenal um, editor, hmm. but has folded uh, a large part of Omnium Gatherum because it was eating away at her writing. That's always okay. a balance. Um, and uh, they offered to take a look at Family Solstice and they wanted to make a new book. But they also, at the same time, were talking about developing a series of novellas. So um, I was very excited uh, that RJ Joseph, who is Rhonda Jackson Garcia, was going to be editing um, these novellas, basically like goosebumps for grownups. Mm -hmm. And uh, my two novellas are put together as the first book of that series. Uh, it's pretty great. And I've read the next one that comes out in January from Elle Marie Wood called 12 Hours. And I wrote an afterward for it. Phenomenal book. So it's a good if somebody wants to like get something they can continue to buy for 
uh, fans of horror and their family, yeah. this series, I think, is a good way to go. Again, like I said, I'm not a huge fan of, well, I don't know horror as well. With the podcast, I've read some great work and really, you know, done an about face. But the little I know, it doesn't seem to be talking about, I mean, both of these novellas, but we're going to start with Safer. But it doesn't seem to be, you know, it's not slasher horror. It's not monsters and, and killers and all that. It's a type of, I don't know, is it, is, is it magic realism-y, if that's a Psycho word? I think it's more a psychological thriller, that first sure. one. Um, both of them have elements of supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, I think second turns into straight up horror, but horror is a very big umbrella. It encompasses yeah. some science fiction. It encompasses literary fiction. Right. I think sense. people often think of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it's a, mm -hmm. it's a vast genre with a lot of really beautiful reading in it. Sure. Yeah, no, the psychological thing definitely um, fits and makes a lot of sense. It's Marquez or somebody who's known for magical realism or realism. They I've always I was always taught, you know, it's very nonchalant, like the old man with enormous wings. It's like, oh, yeah, he has wings. And and I mean, that as a compliment for your book, there are some parts of the, you know, the supernatural or sur surreal. But it's like, OK, cool. Next. You know, they're they're very believable and they fit into the storyline. Yeah, Marquez, Marquez said that you just have to tell it with a brick face. He he learned how to mm. tell stories like that from his grandmother. And um, yeah, I think sort of an acceptance that the supernatural is already there and then focusing on the characters and the story makes for some good reading. Mm. That's usually my approach. Yeah. So the pitch so for... <laughs> My first novel, Harrogate, had this like long elaborate thing on the back because they didn't want to talk about it being a ghost story. But if I could write the log line, it would be a man's wife and kid are dead, but living with him. What does he do uh. about it? You know, <laughs> that's it. for the first novella we have soledad it goes by soul and i don't even remember if this was before we were recording or not but i just you know highly complimentary of how you how you write about uh that crazy time that was 2020 that seems like it was yesterday but also seems like it was a million years ago right the washing mm -hmm. of the groceries and all of those things and the mask and you know obviously hopefully you know people still masking in the appropriate places but it's like always masking everywhere and just being afraid to even approach someone on a, in a hiking trail, you know, those kind of things. But I just wonder how you were able to feel like a lot of times you need perspective, you need 7, 10, 20 years to be able to look back on on such a calamitous event, but how you um, wrote about it so well. Were you writing this during the time? I mean, how did that work? No, no, I wrote this mm, over 2022, mm -hmm. but um, it was such a singular time Yep. And I think we all were paying attention. And I do know writers don't want to dwell there. So they may not be writing about it now. Uh, some people believe it was just a blip. But I really do think it was a singular thing we lived through. Um, for my kids, I, I just printed out like 300 pictures of that year to put in a box under their bed in case their kids asked. Because it was a very, oh, no. lockdown was really wild. Yeah. Um, so it became an easy space to create tension and and because uh, we were all afraid every day of so much um and so it also became a space where that story is allowed to happen because there aren't as many checkpoints with checking in with other people or people saying you're behaving very strangely or should you shouldn't be that way with your child mm -hmm. um all of that was gone everybody was like stuck in the house yeah. so it was a good background for that and i think it was a nice way of like working out how difficult that time is, was especially for young people who, for whom school dried up, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I know a lot of people who couldn't see their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, you know, because they did not want to infect them. And so, sure. yeah, it just, it, it was the appropriate background, I think, for that story. Mm. There's a cryptic and really good for foreshadowing the first line of the story, the novella is, Mama didn't want me to take the job at first. I wonder if she knew somehow, which obviously gets the reader thinking. So Beechwood Canyon, I mean, is that is that like Hollywood Hills adjacent? I lived there four years um, up on North Gower Street, and I took a lot okay. of walks in those hills. And I always looked up at Wolf's Lair, which is a real mansion mm. uh, that Moby did own for a spell and <laughs> um, reconditioned. 
and then sold and he sold it to anonymous and so that was part of what inspired this i was like gosh anonymous they must be like either wicked famous and doesn't want anybody right. to know they're there you know that kind of thing um so uh which is funny because if you go on google maps i think it still says moby's wolf Lair <laughs> for some <laughs> reason anyway um yeah i spent a lot of uh time in that canyon and so it was a good place to bring it to life and then mm -hmm. i was able to because it it sits above uh the hollywood reservoir mm. i was able to go hike the paths i was setting a chase scene on nice. or the hiking scenes on so you know soul is she needs a place to i mean she's she's missing school she's doing i guess maybe a child psychology major she has a lot of background with preschool um it's really cool how you fit those pieces in where she seems to me to be legitimate the the information she's learning and that she's able to use, she's not just a, a babysitter. She's not just an au pair. She really thinks these things through. And, and this idea that kids should have quiet definitely at certain times. And the kid, the kid in the house is Story. We have Celine, who's the wife, and then the old, uber famous actor who, okay, because because Soul has to sign an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, we only know him as JF, right? We don't know which actor he is, right? Celine is yeah I, I told people to imagine Brad Pitt <laughs> I was imagining more Tom Cruise-ish I don't know why yeah, that'll do but like I don't know he's not even married anymore is he I don't know okay okay Brad Pitt-ish all right yeah, yeah yeah but with this NDA there's also that extra layer that's really cool for a horror story or like you talked about where people are isolated and there's not as much information being shared JF the famous dude he seems to be pretty solicitous to Celine she's She's quirky to say the least. She's moody. I wonder how you would describe Celine and how you really built her as an interesting character. Like what's she all about? Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I, there seemed to be a type of person. I worked in Hollywood for, for ah, 20 years, have. 10 years okay. physically. Yeah. So there were sort of characters who, who I, I kind of one worried, worried for, wondered about, um, whose entire life was basically maintaining a house for someone famous mm. and whose day-to-day -day society and culture was based around, you know, um, uh, um, appointments and, you know, it seemed sort of, you know, a way to be completely disconnected from reality. And mm. so sometimes it was a trip talking to folks like that because yeah. you kind of, I did wonder about their days and I think Celine came from there. Mm-hmm. She, I pictured her as like an, I mean, I, I know Gwyneth Paltrow seems to be quirky anyway. I, I, I kind of picture her as like an incredibly quirky Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know. Kind of granola-y. Uh, well, yeah. Right? Whatever worked in your head is correct. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There you go. You know, we talked about like the nonchalant, nonchalance, I guess would be the word. The nonchalance of like the, the supernatural. And so story is a very, uh, I don't know. I would say a sentimental kid, but aren't all kids. But he's also he's a little he's a little six sensey, right? And he's mm -hmm. seems to be in in almost constant communication with Mrs. Wolf. We talk about Wolf's lair, and she's not a real she's not a living person. So Soul gets set up with this really just beautiful quarters, if you will, but it's nicer than all of our houses. And here's all the screaming and all this, and finds out and talk about nonchalant. They're like, oh yeah, it's the ghost of a gibbon, you know, gibbon like a monkey. So I wonder about this Mrs. Wolf and how she figures in as a supernatural character and also the ghost of this gibbon. Yeah, well, I was lucky. Um, the ghosts are actually uh, real tales that come out of that mansion. Um, Mr. Wolf is the man who built the house and apparently he and his wife um, uh, were at odds. And part of it was he adopted this gibbon that absolutely hated her. So they actually put the gibbon in the guest house that you have described uh -huh. and supposedly you are there you can hear the scream of the gibbon and so i just kind of took that that thread of the story and sort of like you know uh breathed into it and made it um have cause and effect in this mm -hmm. story for <laughs> the characters um because yeah it's just very funny that there's like a monkey that would hold a grudge and that there are people who are like oh yes of course that's haunted by you know yeah celebrities they're just like us right <laughs> Yeah. And um, Mrs. Wolf, I just wanted, you know, poor story to have somebody oh. because he gets so isolated. Um, and that also comes from 
I had seen households where uh, children were produced more as props than it for than anything else and um wow. had very lonely lives i went to a producer's birthday party for his third, da third daughter's third birthday and mm -hmm. everybody in hollywood was there and they had pony rides and all this stuff out outside mm -hmm. and when i left i saw the living room hanging out with the nanny playing with a cardboard box and uh, because that was more fun Sure. And I just thought about how overwhelming, you know, her day-to-day -day life was. So a lot of that went into into stories, stories, wow. days. Okay, wow, wow. If, unless you signed an NDA for that party, can you can you dish? I mean, who who were some of the famous people? No, I cannot dish. <laughs> um, but Fair yeah, enough. no, Fair I signed. Enough. The only NDA I signed for was for when I worked for Sylvester Stallone. Um, but it wasn't oh. him, and uh, that <laughs> only lasted twenty years. So. <laughs> I, th oh, I, th I think it's funny. NDA, NDAs are very funny, the way they're yes. phrased and stuff. I think at the time I could have been sued for $250,000 if I'd spilled any dirt. To be honest, I thought that was now kind it's of a probably millions. I was just say I, I thought it was kind of a low amount of money. I know nothing about NDAs, but I was like, oh, that's interesting. And the 20 years is so arbitrary and random, but but OK, yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's arbitrary and random until like the person is surviving and still has a career. I think they sure, should they probably. Sure. up the years on those things i thought when you said 20 years i thought you meant you worked for sylvester sloan for 20 years i was like oh cool oh no i worked for him <laughs> um over in 1996 and seven okay so the 20 years has passed since then oh wow interesting soul is you talk about that loneliness that everyone's has and that being away from people with with lockdown and so you know she they go on walks she'll take story they go on walks in the hills he takes a really tough fall one of these days. Um, just yeah, he 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 tumbles and really hurts his head, and it's pretty serious. And definitely, if it were not COVID times, it's like emergency room now. Um, but it's like, okay, what do we do here? I, the you draw that scene so well. You talk about the psychological horror. Can you describe the scene a little bit where it's like he needs a tetanus shot, but he doesn't get it in the doctor's office? Yeah, yeah, that was fun to play with. I know a lot of folks who worked for that kind of out of touch person. And it puts you in precarious situations sometimes, uh, morality-wise. And um, it's difficult because you are working for them. And in this case, you're working for the parent of a child who's there to make decisions. Um, but yeah, Story has a big gas dash in his head. And um, uh, James Famous, the or JF, ends up uh, stitching it himself in a rather hair-raising scene. But how it came about, I just, that disconnect that you have with people you work for, and also they might have a disconnect from reality, but they're in charge is a very interesting power balance to sort of explore. Sure. And so I did that in that one. And also in, there's this question of where you draw a line when you're doing personal things for someone you're working for, when yeah. they have all the power. Right. Uh, and these two people have all the power. And so, um, Later, they procure from some dodgy doctor a, a tetanus shot because mm -hmm. Sol has insisted that the child get a tetanus yeah. shot, which is actually necessary after a gash on a mountain trail. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, James Famous asks, it's better in the book than <laughs> by describing it, but he <laughs> asks her to give this shot. And it's about trying to reclaim her space in this impossible Yes. Um, place, but also to protect the child from the monsters that are his parents and to keep things okay for the kid. So I think always those like little balances and choices you have to do mm -hmm. when you work for someone incredibly wealthy. Um, it just was an interesting space to explore. Yeah, that scene was so well drawn. Thank you. Start to uh, tread, tread lightly, maybe the pun on the walking, but as I started to tread lightly about giving away any part of the big part of the plot, spoiling. You know, as we stop with the with the plot, because it's so interesting, it needs to be read. People need to buy this uh, this book. Bleak Houses and the safer part, like I said, is so well done with quarantine and just that crazy singular time. But some of the themes that come up, you talked a little bit about it. And what I really enjoyed about Safer is that it, you're not hitting us over the head with these, you know, moral qualms or dilemmas. But there's definitely, like you talked about already, the power dynamic, for sure. Um I remind me the name of the of the in-house chef. Oh goodness. <laughs> Marcus? It's only because you got Marcus. 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 Right? Yeah. So Marcus. I'm in another I'm in another I'm rewriting a book that's gonna mm. come out in January right now. And there's uh. there's a chef I'm at too, so it's stopping. <laughs> Getting it mixed up. 
I, I can see that. Mm-hmm. You know, so Marcus, a black man, he's the chef. And he, like, in the same way as Soul a little bit, it's kind of like, okay. And Soul, I appreciate it because she's mostly like, hey, full straight ahead, straight ahead, let's do the right thing morally. But both of them are like, hey, we're getting paid. Like, it's very human. Like, mm, you know, at, In a, a certain, time when there are no jobs, too. At a time when there are no jobs, right? Like, mm-hmm. we totally understandable. He's her ally in some ways. In other ways, he's just like, hey, I'm kind of going to look the other way. So there are definitely ideas of race. The the white woman, um, you know, Celine, who seems, who knows about her background, but seems to have, you know, an easy life. There's also, you know, the... Like you talked about the one, like she's like a, a housewife, if you will, right? And it's not like, oh, mm-hmm. boo-hoo, like cliche, we should feel sorry for her. But we there are reasons to feel sorry for her, maybe, towards the beginning, right? And again, like it's not something where you're hitting us over the head with it. Like, oh, you know, rich people aren't just one way. It's so it's so very nuanced and really interesting characters that, that you draw. You talked about isolation, uh, Soul's parents. Her dad seems to be in a decent spot where he does need to go to work, but it's kind of more open air. She's very much worried about her mom. But I wonder what, being that you have this this history and um, this background in in Hollywood around Hollywood, what more are you saying? I guess about just about rich people and just how the just the different, absolute different worlds they live in. I guess just power dynamics in general. There is a power dynamic with money and there is a power dynamic with race here, Um, because I think while Marcus is not exactly like, you know, all there for soul, he does have to look out for this one job that he does have. Sure. And uh, so his choices are definitely about Mm self-preservation at a time where it's very hard to get other jobs. Um, And uh, I did think about during lockdown, there were horror stories of how nannies were um, asked to quarantine with very wealthy uh, um, parents or Hollywood parents, Mm. and they were not allowed to see their own family Mm. because that might Mm. put that family at work. And so they needed to give up their life in order to uh, keep a job that would support their family, Um, but they were not allowed to see them. So that power dynamic is something that I definitely Mm -hmm. wanted to uh, explore. Um, But Sol, I was thinking more about like college students and how, um, uh, you know, classes just stopped and her job that probably subsisted her during college stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, So she had no income um, and she had to make choices and how easy it was for these two people to just do nothing. JF and his wife, Celine, and just sort of, you know, exist and, um, you know, how their notion of reality and how things work, especially when it comes to that tetanus shot Mm. and things like that. They just have a, there were people having different operational realities during uh, the pandemic. Mm. And so people who were frontline workers and had to to go to work and had to show up to work. Mm -hmm. um, And then people who, you know, we're not seeing people as sort of virtue signaling, but they had the ease of that choice. The ease of so, that yeah, choice, for sure. All of that. We, we will not give away the plot, but you draw a really, really cool chase scene that you'd mentioned earlier. It is on a specific path. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Open yeah. to the public. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're flexing like your different muscles as a writer there, I'm sure. Like that was, uh, you know, just so cool about, you know, the, the darkness and the isolation and, you know, who could hear who... And, you know, what, just kind of like thinking a couple of steps ahead about who's going to be waiting there and who's going to be doing this and that. So I don't know. That's like maybe <laughs> your, your, your crime writing, you know, part or I don't know what, but it wasn't crime. But yeah, just straight action. Family Solstice is the second novella. You talked about this being based on your real house. This is Middletown. Can we say Middletown, Connecticut? Yeah. Yeah, right? I think they're going to sue me. <laughs> right, right, right. No NDA there. Okay. And you talk about how growing up, it wasn't necessarily this way, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, at least this house is very old, like waspy, like old, like like Puritan pilgrims. You know, oh it's, no, it's it's right? 1902. It was built on. Um, it was meant to be built on Pilgrim land, but mm-hmm. the the prior house had been damaged in a fire. Okay, uh, which we can draw your conclusions about when you finish the book. Um, but this sure. house 
actually based on the 1902 um, revival of Greek revival house that I grew up okay. on that yeah. was on a college campus. Yeah. I'm sorry. I guess what I mean is more of like a capital H, like the house of, right? Like you talk about like the family itself. Mm, yeah. uh, right. I mean, you feel you talk about it's like what, like 12 generations going back and all that. Um, that's well, obviously part their, of their story. Yeah, their land goes back uh, mm -hmm. uh, to colonial there you go. times. There you go. I wonder what it is about the solstice in particular that that led you to write about it. The solstice, Shay, the narrator, she's about to turn 13, and it's her turn, which we'll talk about in a minute, for this important thing with solstice. But what is it about the solstice that draws a lot of writers, but I guess but draw, drew you in particular? Well, this, that's kind of funny. It was actually uh, my friend, um, Lisa Morton, who's an editor, was going mm -hmm. to be doing a um, uh, an anthology set in winter solstice with uh, Ellen Datlow, and they were pitching it around. And so I started digging into a story for that. Now, um, to explain about the where the story came from, my mm -hmm. parents' house... Uh, I was in the process of selling after their passing, after my mom had passed, and um, a pipe burst in the attic and uh, made a flood happen that later hit the boiler. And then all of the pipes in the house burst. And Ooh. on the day it was meant to switch over, uh, the woman who was acquiring the house walked in and said there was a literal waterfall coming mm. down from the second story and coming over. And um, I, it, it really wrecked me for a number of reasons. Um, and I had been trying to write at it in different ways mm. and ghost stories just weren't working. They were too personal. Mm -hmm. And so there was something about this prompt of winter solstice and thinking about the house yeah. um, that made me sort of uh, come to this idea of this ritual that happens at solstice in this. Okay. And I, I was able to, um, without spoiling it, utilize the destruction of the house in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I wanted to capture what it was to be in that house and what it was like and mm -hmm. all of the stuff. Uh, I promise you my parents did not have Puritan um, uh, stuff kicking around. Sure. Uh, that's Shay's family specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the the setting worked really well for the story that I was telling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the house is perfect for the story. As the solstice draws near, Shay starts to practice, and we we don't know what she's practicing for, but it's almost like karate training or self defense training. And you know, it has to do with the nighttime. There's a there's a you know there's that certain quietness of the house that even though it's a big family, there's that quietness of the house that comes with these, at least in my mind, with these old kind of creaky homes. You know what I mean? It's almost like the quiet is loud. Now that's like a corny, corny oxymoron. It's or whatever, terrifying. Right? Yes. <laughs> There's a yes. reason I write horror. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the family is like, yeah, we don't talk about, we don't talk about Toby. Toby was, Shay doesn't really even seem to know, remember Toby, sees him in pictures. And it's one of those where it's like, do I know him from the pictures? Do I know him from my memories? Uh, another one of the older sons left. This is Carl. This is 1978. The dad seems to be a pretty loving guy. He's kind of on the mellow side. He took the Massey name, M-A-S-S-E-Y. He took his wife's family name. And Shay's like, is this a hippie thing? Um, but it's more like he's, you know, marrying into the family, which has that that history we've talked about. There's a little bit about him, like, not being so PC. And he'll say, what's up, guys? And those kind of things. But seems to be like a decent guy. But as she gets ready, as Shay does, there seems to be the mother and the father. They seem to kind of look at her differently than they maybe even did for the others. And the mom has been said over these years when the solstice happens, when each of the family kids does something, you know, d does their their duty, she kind of withdraws. She literally withdraws. She goes to bed kind of thing. I wonder about the, about the mom's character. Is she a coward? Is she someone who can't bear to see certain things is it, is it a human response to to step back i wonder about her passivity yeah um well i think it gets answered in a way i can't talk about yet but i yeah. think that it is generational family trauma mm. and i think she cannot cope with what goes on mm -hmm. um and we later find out what goes on in the solstice is a tradition that is not good for the planet um, sure. that is, uh, so I think it's sort of her way of coping. And this is something that's been in her family since she grew up and did the same thing. Mm. Uh, and, uh, she also assumed this role of 
ownership of the house, which happens. Mm -hmm. um, so it's also just, you know, a light way of dealing with, with um, for kids, with um, parents who suffer deep depression. Yeah. Um, so that was easy enough to feed into. And dad sort of keeps things going during that time. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for you. You know, better than I do about your own writing. Like you, I was complimenting you about not really sitting in judgment, not really over hitting us over the head with these moral qualms. This thing should be this way. Like, do you necessarily like with a mother, like, do you kind of sit in judgment of her or are you kind of like, Hey, here's the character and reader do what you will with her. Yeah. I, I think it's more, if you can get where your characters are coming from mm -hmm. um, and how they're wired, you don't necessarily have to judge them. I think it really stinks for the kids what's going mm -hmm. on that, you know, she checks out of and Shay, yeah. Shay reflects on that. And I sure. think it's more sort of a space to create questions for the characters. Mm -hmm. And this is more sort of uh, about waking up to a system that you're part of and realizing that, mm -hmm. oh, that may not be great. And that system can be within a family or it can be within um, a culture, sure. but sort of seeing once you see how the sausage is made, coming to a place where you can uh, make a decision. That's sort of uh, what it goes toward. Well, you talked about generational trauma. I mean, obviously, the elephant in the room is that if if this massive family says they've had this this land for, you know, 12 generations, well, there were people before there were the indigenous peoples. Right. And there's so much in the book about old family and generational trauma is land even something you can own like what does that even mean and about changing cycles which again we're not gonna spoil any plot i was so i thought the last you have a different narrator for the last like i think literally page yeah and it was such a different voice such like a sitter, cynical cynical bitter voice and it was so well done i'm like dang and it was, you know, it was every... such opposition to the to shay's voice excuse me for interrupting I think in every family, people deal with realities in a different way and mm -hmm. make decisions in different ways. So, um, but as far as generational stuff goes, the name Massey is actually the name of um, our family that mm. came over in the 1700s. Um, mm. And so, you know, there's a question of culpability there. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Um, we did find that uh, I had family on another side that came over and received 190 acres of Lenape land. So that's much mm. of us of, of New York, um, mm. you know, as a gift from the crown. So, you know, it's sort of exploring right. uh, those questions. And um, yeah. Shay is at a position where she can start to really ask those questions and start to make decisions about who she is. It's, it's that sensitive time where you realize that you are part of your family culture, but you're also figuring out who you are on your own. Mm-hmm. And to so, sort of explore that. It seems to me maybe more like that the second novella, more than the first, is a little bit more. I mean, is there's so much allegory, symbolism there. The first you could definitely talk about that in the same way, but I wonder how much you kind of went in with like an idea about like what what you want the story to represent versus just like plot and then the no, the allegory came was... second. Yeah, I did not know what was in the basement for the longest time of writing <laughs> okay, this. Okay. But we were sitting um, and uh, George Floyd was murdered. And um, there was a lot of thought and conversation around that. And that is when I started to dig into the answer. Uh, and then I was able to pull back through the allegory parts of it. Mm -hmm. The family story was more what I was dwelling in when I came from it, which was, you know, you're 13 and you find out that uh, your family's not the greatest. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's a lot about sort of people keeping you from the truth about things until an age when it starts mm -hmm. to come out. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it about, you know, losing her, this brother she knows nothing about and things like that. So that's where coming up from the beginning. And then once I found out what was in the basement, I was able to go back through. I'm, I'm, I really love to revise. So yes. I was able to go back through and thread ideas throughout the story. Okay. So just now you're talking literally about when you find out what was in the basement as a writer, like, man, I just, as, we as a writer. Talking, yeah. I had no uh, idea what was down there. I was yeah, like, no, no, it's I, creepy. I, I, it's yeah. They do something and it involves fighting. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I understood when you said that first. And just now when you said it, I was thinking you were still talking metaphorically. I just, as I keep talking to you, there's so many cool more layers, like this idea of like third bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah time, confirmation and Catholicism and quinceanera and, you know, Latino backgrounds and just like this, you know, keeping it away from you and evil and stories. And is it good? Is it bad? 
It doesn't matter when we tell the, our kids, man, there's just so many layers. So I want you to just like navigate us through these crazy years. So I'm looking forward to your, your work about whatever happens in 2024 with the election and all this. I'm not trying to ever write from a place of, um, you know, it's very interesting. Um, and obviously the work is now problematic, but what it was interesting to me about Mark Twain's uh, career is that you read, um, Tom Sawyer and it's just straight up novel. And then you read the beginning of Huckleberry Finn and it reads the same. It feels like a sequel. Mm. And then all of a sudden it becomes deeply political and he's mm. absolutely challenging people who are Christian minded, but slave owners and all this other stuff. Mm. I was like, what happened? So I went back to that um, time and it turns out that the civil rights, there was a civil rights act that was coming up for a vote and it got overturned and he got mad. <laughs> So I'm never starting a story saying, I need to write about this, you sure. know, that's not, or people need to, that's not where it comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this one was more from character. And then I'm like, oh, while you're here, you see the metaphors that arise uh -huh. and then you can lean into them a little bit more. Yeah. You could read Safer, for example, is just like cool action, like really cool encapsulation of that time. Or you can read it with, you know, like I said, in the more psychological, there's so many different ways to read both of those novellas. Just the the plots mm -hmm. themselves are so interesting, and then the allegories, the layers are like, whoa, really make you think. And with with and I'm not, I wasn't trying to, um, you know, belabor a lecture with anybody with family solstice. It was more me taking a personal reckoning of our yeah. family and inheritance, you yeah. know. So I'd love to know how you uh, want to kind of flex the writer muscles in the future. Anything that you want to share that you're working on in the future? Um, actually, uh, what's really exciting is um, I just signed a contract with the Writ Large Press, and they're going to nice. uh, release my next horror novel um, in um, as a serial. And so you can subscribe, um, and you'll get a couple chapters every time. And um, I believe if you subscribe when the solid book comes out, that you can get it at a discount because you've already you know paid for um, that. Um, so that's going to be really fun. And that is more, that's why I was confused about the chef uh, that does take place in Hollywood. I think I was working out all of my thoughts on, on that period. It's a full novel though. Um, mm. And it's basically, uh, you know, Hollywood is really run by a demon and how that works. And mm. it deals with uh, cults and um, reporter uh, and executive and, um, a uh an actress who is just coming out and slowly learning about it and so they're learning about things at different stages and mm -hmm. um it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to write like i was it. i was i was kind of working stuff out from my time working in hollywood i worked for some very kind bosses so i was very grateful mm -hmm. for that mm -hmm. but there was a lot yeah i had questions <laughs> sure, sure. and so i kind of uh worked them out in this one any scientology shout outs on this new one uh, I do not shout out, <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, but if would like one would like to infer some things, you might. I, I, um, see. I see. But no, it's not. It's not. It's not a straight up anything. It's more uh, an exploration of those places. Again, it, when we're in a system, noticing what's mm -hmm. right or wrong in that system, and those very tiny little moral lines that you cross, um, like our main character with her best friend crosses a few yeah. a few lines um so that one's really fun and i actually have a straight up um literary uh non-drama mm. <laughs> novel coming out from running wild in 2025 that oh. i just got the covers in for today so i'm very excited to uh, and that one is um uh a family drama that covers um several generations and it's about how when you make decisions uh in your life how they can affect a ripple effect through your family mm. so. wow so uh and on, on the episode notes for this for this episode i'll you know be sure to put the links to to buy your books and your websites and stuff um, thank you i don't but, i don't think we have one yet for i was gonna, I was gonna uh, ask you about this yeah this, this serial one doesn't have anything yet either but... uh not yet okay. it will um and okay. um yeah i'll definitely you know okay. i'll let you know when Where I'm can not. we find you online? The last name is spelled M-A-R-U-Y-A-M-A. -A. Where can we find you online? Yeah, so katemaruyama.com, and it'll get you right there, and um, I keep updates. And also, I have a newsletter called uh, Read, Write, Cook, and um, there are recommendations for reading, basic news that's going on, but also writing prompts mm. and uh, recipes for things. And it comes up periodically. It used to be once a month, but now it's more periodic. 
What an incredible combination. Read, write, cook. Awesome. Yeah. I did the pork in Family Solstice for fa- when Family uh, Solstice came out. There's fun. There's always food in my book, so it, it's kind of fun. Yeah, just like there's a playlist for some, like a music playlist. You have like a a recipe list, food playlist. Food yeah, playlist. Yeah. Well, it's so awesome talking to you. Thanks for letting us get into the mind a little bit. Really enjoyed the Having work me. and was challenged. Thank you so much. It was awesome talking to you. I appreciate it. What a pleasure it has been to speak with Kate Maruyama. Continue to good luck with her writing, and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chills at Will podcast. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at chills at will P O one give Kate a follow while you're there as well on Twitter and Instagram. Again, that's M A R U Y A M A. You can also subscribe to the chills at will podcast channel on YouTube. Did you like what you heard today? Please retweet episode info, share it on social media and via word of mouth. It all helps and is greatly appreciated. Sign up now for the chills at will podcast, Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills a will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. In the next four or five months, the Patreon episodes, these bonus episodes I'm referring to, Include Boo Trundle, the author. Include Alex Squadron, who's written about the G League. Include Karen Outen, as well as episodes revolving around Tommy Orange, Luis Rodriguez, and Truman Capote. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. And the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 217 with Jeff Charlotte. He is a New York Times and national best-selling author of The Family and C Street. He was an executive producer of the five-part Netflix series The Family from 2019, which is based on two of his books. His newest book is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. This episode will air on December 19th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Kate Maruyama, whose work, like Bleak Houses, gives you chills at will. Mm